the Alter Rebbe addresses this and says, do you know why you're experiencing shame? You're experiencing shame because you think you are somebody who you're not. Who do you think you are? You think you're a tzaddik. That's why you're having shame. So like, forget about that notion. You're a struggler. You're going to mess up and then you get back up and you do teshuva, you return to yourself and there's no reason for the shame. Hi there, my name is Tanya Khazanov, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast in honor of a birthday, yard side, someone you love, please reach out to us at info at humanandholy.com or visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor to give in any amount. The links are in the show notes. Today's episode is a practical exploration of the Bainani of the Tanya, who she is and how she shows up in the world when her humanity weighs on her. What does it actually look like to bring our animal soul in alignment with our godly soul? How do we interact with our daily triggers, both big and small, and the guilt and shame that often follows our hardest moments? I feel really connected to you, even though we've never gotten the chance really to speak besides for our pre-conversation. So I'm excited to get to connect and learn from you and get to know you a bit. Can you start just by introducing yourself? Tell us your name and tell us a little bit about who you are. Sure. My name is Devarle Amaris. I am a mother of several children. Thank God. I am a wife. I'm a shlucha for about 15 plus years now. That's kind of crazy. Wow. And... Most recently, in the last couple of years, I have become a licensed couples, marriage, and family psychotherapist. That's in a nutshell, <laughs> in a very small nutshell. It tells us a little bit about what you love. I would love to hear from you. Like, what is it that you love? Like, what draws you to all of this work? Yeah, I love humans, which is funny because I'm an introvert. So like my family makes fun of me like that I became a therapist, but I, I don't like the small talk. I like the deep talk. I like the real humanness of people and talking about real struggles and overcoming struggles and helping people through their humanity and finding my own humanity while I do so. I do just love the connecting part of it. Nice. I love that. Connecting on that level and finding that within yourself while you do that. That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. Okay. So today, thank you so much for having me on, by the way. I feel like it's such an honor. I've listened to so many episodes here on Human and Holy, and I was so hesitant to come on because I feel like I'm more human than holy at this point in my life. <laughs> so I'm going to offer you a lot of humanness on this episode today. I don't know about how much holiness, but we'll try to get there. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> So today I'll open with our topic, which is that today we're going to talk about the Bainani and Tanya. Who is the Bainani and Tanya? What is its relevance to our life? 
I think a lot of people kind of write off the character of the Bainini, but before we get into that, can you just begin by sharing like your definition of the Bainini and what its context is in Hasidic text? Well, I think how the Alter Rebbe sort of conceptualized what the Bainini is and why I love this topic so much is because it's us. It's the best version of who we are. It's who the Alter Rebbe thought we can become. And that's very empowering because when you learn about who the Bainini is, it sometimes feels like, oh my gosh, like how me, I'm supposed to be doing, we could get into what the Bainini is and why that feels sometimes so overwhelming for us humans. But the Alter Rebbe saw that we can achieve this kind of self-mastery and the Alter Rebbe believed in us. We spoke about this in a previous conversation, but I think that one of the most empowering parts for me learning this part of the Tanya is that even when I don't believe in myself, even when I think I'm never going to become that, the Alter Rebbe says, no, 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 I believe in you guys. Like I believe in everyday struggles and I believe that you can achieve this. It's so empowering to think that. Mm. So what is this belief that the Alter Rebbe has in us? Like what is the definition of the Bainanit that the Alter Rebbe believes each person can become? Well, first of all, I think there's a really beautiful juxtaposition in who the Bainani is, right? Well, let's rewind for a second. I think that to start off with, it's interesting because most people nowadays, I think part of like our modern struggle, so many people I see in therapy and myself and my friends and, you know, is we struggle with who we are. We struggle with our identity. We struggle with normalizing our, like, are we normal to feel this way? Like what's going on with us? Like we question, you know, our everyday challenges and the Alter Rebbe comes and tells us everything about your struggle is normal. Mm. And he gets into it. And when he explains who the Bainani is, but going back into, you know, that juxtaposition that I was talking about, on the one hand, the Alter Rebbe explains the Bainani as the struggler, as somebody who has the everyday reactive emotions, those triggers, the real humanity of us, right? And in that humanness and in that struggle, the Alter Rebbe says that that is the purpose of the Bainani. Like, we're not struggling to become a Bainani. The Bainani is the struggler. Like, mm. that is the purpose of who the Bainani is. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we come to what I started off, which really inspires me and empowers me, is that the Alter Rebbe says, yes, you're the struggler, but guess what? Also, you're able to achieve something that you don't feel like at times you can achieve. So he believes that we can become something so much greater despite, but not even despite, especially with the struggle. That's part of that mastery. That's part of the beauty. That's part of what Hashem loves to see. So I think those two things that might feel incongruent or feel like the Bainani is so great, but wait, the Bainani is also just a struggler. Insides of the Bainani is like a Russia, mm -hmm. right? The outsides are like a tzaddik. So the insides like a Russia, that's like the part that, oh my gosh, we're so normal. Lal Tareb understands us. The outside, which is exactly like a tzaddik, the outside meaning the expression in which the Bainani expresses himself through thought. I want to say developed thought. We can get into that after speech and action is as like he's a tzaddik. That's when we start doubting ourselves. Like what? Mm. Like, yes, we're having this internal struggle. We're so normal, but you expect us to be perfect every single time through that speech and thought and action. How do you expect that of us? Like we're always triggered, right? And the Alter Rebbe says, no, 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 I do believe in you. And it's interesting because preceding this idea of Bainani, the Alter Rebbe does tell us about the composition of what our 
insides look like. And he starts off with the famous Nefesh Elikis, Nefesh Abahamis. But the Nefesh Elikis has that. And I think this connects to the part where we feel like we can't do it. All our can'ts in life. We have this, you know, Nefesh Elikis. So we have a part of infinity within each and every one of us. And I think maybe that's where the belief, I can't speak for the Alter Ebet, is that we can achieve all these things because we have something infinite within us. And therefore, when we feel so limited and we feel like we can't and we feel like we're so triggered or this is so not human, we can't move on. We can't, we can't. All our, our can'ts, we put on that mirror where we can see our godly soul in us. And fear is like light and infinity power. And we can, it's that supernaturalness that the Alter Rebbe sees in us. And I think even developing that idea, that's really what the Rebbe saw in every single one of us. Because thinking of all the campaigns and all expectations the Rebbe wanted of us. I mean, now, generations later, we're like, of course, we're going to put filling on the street. And we're going to ask people to light Shabbos candles. We're going to ask people to go to the mikvah. But Back in the day when the Rebbe brought these campaigns up, it sounded crazy. Right. I mean, some of the Hasidim were really pushing back. But again, I think the Rebbe saw what the Alter Rebbe saw, which is that part that can go beyond logic and rationalization. And he saw, no, you can. You can go beyond yourself and do things that you thought you could never do. And so getting back to the Bainani, circling back, we feel like we can't do that. It's crazy. We can't always say the right things when we're triggered or when we're feeling upset at somebody else or when we're having an argument with our husband or when our children are fighting and driving us crazy. And the altar Rebbe says, no, 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 you have that godliness in you. Of course you can. So there's like two pieces there. Cause I love how you began that with just normalizing the struggle. Like the being by definition is a struggler. And I think that that's the hardest part for a lot of people is feeling like maybe there's something abnormal about that inner struggle. Like, do other people have these inner processes or urges or whatever we're dealing with? Yeah. It's interesting because we could talk about it later, but what I'm hearing you say is actually what I'm hearing, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, is a little bit of guilt and shame in there. Like, I'm not normal. Like, something's wrong with me. That's what shame is. For sure. Right? Yeah. The Alter Rebbe addresses that in Leader Parakim and Tanya. We could get to that in a bit. Yeah. But- I wanted to bring in just something here is that... In psychology, and I might like tie it in, just the therapist part of me, but when I was learning Tanya, almost every single part of Tanya, I was able to point to, because I went through the Tanya last year, and that was a couple of years after I went to school for psychology, and everything that I learned in the Tanya, I was able to point to something in psychology and say, oh my goodness, the Alter Rebbe said what psychologists were saying a couple hundred years later, a hundred years later, starting from Freud to so many different psychologists and so many different theories. And the Alter Rebbe was talking about it right there. So the fact that the Alter Rebbe looked at everybody with goodness, we have a chelik alakai, and he talks more about it in Paraklamid Bays. We, we're godly oriented. We identify as a soul rather than a body. And that's how we can see each other. But all these ideas... I don't know, a hundred and something years later, there was a psychiatrist and a psychologist, Carl Rogers. And most therapy these days follow his big idea, which is that every single person has a very humanistic, he basically believed that everyone's essentially good inside, right? So when our clients come in, that's our belief. We have unconditional positive regard to them. We have empathy because everyone's good inside. But that was 
Now it's like, duh, what do you mean? But then it was a very revolutionary idea because when Freud, who was like the father of all psychotherapy, began, he believed in the whole id idea that people were really primitive and selfish and not good. And so Carl Rogers comes years later and says, actually, I'm going to challenge that. And this was like a huge idea in the world. It was a whole, like, he called his patients clients, Carl Rogers, instead of patients. Freud was like, I'm the powerful one. You lay down on the couch, right? <laughs> Carl Rogers was like, no, 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 humanistic. Like, you're good. You're essentially good inside. So getting back to the altar, I was saying this in Tanya the whole time. He's like, you're good people. <laughs> the struggle does not mean you're bad. You're good. And he talks about all those feelings you just mentioned, guilt, shame. I mean, we could go on that if you want. Yeah, no, I would love to explore that, but I have to press on a question, which is that yeah. you were mentioning how the Bainani is, I mean, we often see the Bainani as being this unattainable character because yes, the Bainani has all these normal human struggles, but they always show up perfectly in the world. So even as the ultra is normalizing the struggle, it also could seem like he's creating this unattainable standard, which yes, he's believing in us, but realistically, are we always going to hit that note? every time we make a decision, every time we open our mouths, every time we develop our thoughts. So is it really attainable or is it still like, yes, internally you can be human, but you always have to show up perfectly? It's a great question. I struggled with that when I was learning it. I think the end goal is to become a Bainani. I mean, think about what a Bainani is. It's basically we're triggered inside and we're going to be perfect nonetheless on the outsides, right? How we speak to somebody, even though we're angry or we're traumatized or whatever it is, right? And we behave accordingly also. Think about you getting upset at your child in a parking lot. And suddenly you see your neighbor getting into the car right near you. What are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to shut your mouth so quick. You have mastery right away, don't you? So that's what the Alter Rebbe believes, that when we remember who's there, it's not our neighbor, but it's like Hashem and we understand our connection, right? So that's what the Tanya is. The Tanya is telling us how we can achieve that. So yes, it's not easily attainable. It's a lifelong journey. But I think until we get to that, we can have Bainani moments. I think that's the point. The more Bainani moments, the better. So if we're not a Bainani today, we can still have quite a few Bainani moments. And the more Bainani moments, it builds a momentum. It's like anything that you take on yourself. I always tell myself and my clients, building a new habit takes time. I don't know what the science, I think it's like you do it seven times in a row, it becomes a habit or something. I don't know. But the more you do it, the more it becomes natural in you. And we see that neuroscience as well. And that the more you start thinking in a new way or that you behave differently, you see new neurons firing together in the brain right? So you're able to create new neural pathways in your brain when you're starting to have new emotions or new beliefs on something. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if that answered it. So I think it's not easily attainable. Valtteri Abbas still believes we could do it. And I think until we get there, we can have as many many moments as possible. I think what you said was so encouraging and it's a beautiful way of putting the training that happens or the rewiring that happens. That even if we have an internal wiring that is struggling or triggered in any way, when we choose to show up differently, when we choose to develop that trigger differently and show up in a different way, then we do have that opportunity to rewire the way that our Nefesh Bahamas, our human animal soul literally presents itself within ourselves too. 
Yes. Just before this podcast, I was in my kitchen and I told my son, my six-year-old son, he was playing with the headphones. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many headphones we went through in this family. So I was triggered. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) And I said, I said, put it away. Right. And then I went on my phone. That was my next thing. Okay. And then I look up two minutes later and I'm watching something intense because of what's happening around in the world. So I'm triggered. So my nervous system is overstimulated right now. It's totally not functioning as it should be. And then I look down and my son is holding this again and running around <laughs> singing Am Yisrael Chai. Like, and I'm like, do not make me scream. And I, as I'm saying that to him, I'm like, how crazy does that sound? Like he's making me scream. He's not doing anything. I'm making myself scream. I have that choice how to behave here. I'm just triggered. And it's my issue of how I'm going to react to him. I think... We think of banity like these huge struggles. No, I think it's like this everyday struggle, how we talk to our children, how we show up, how we talk to our partners, spouses, our friends, our community members, whatever it is, you know, that's really how the banity manifests in all these everyday relational interactions. I would love to take it into what it means for the banity to have a tzaddik's developed thought, speech, and action. What is the banity's lived experience? There's the inner human struggle which the Alter validates and normalizes. And then there's how the Bainani shows up in the world. So how does a Bainani show up in the world? Yeah. So I actually look at it as the opposite problem. My issue is the opposite. I think sometimes we can suppress our insights, ignore what's happening inside and still show up mm. as a Bainani, meaning I can show up as a Bainani in the way that I'm talking to somebody, even though inside I'm triggered by them. Mm. I think the problem is that and the Alter Rebbe brings it up. And you could push me back, but I see it the opposite, that there's an incongruency happening. Mm. In other words, we can, like I gave that example, like we can quickly remember who we are and we can be very kind to somebody on the outside and inside still have our everyday emotional reactions, our triggers, our anger, whatever. So there's this incongruency happening and the Alter Rebbe talks about that and why that's an issue. And he gives us suggestions on what to do about that. But you're asking the opposite. (laughs) No, but tell me about that. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I think a lot of our anxiety and depression and big emotions and exhaustion happens because we're behaving in certain ways. I see this in a lot of people, right? A lot of anxiety comes as a result of the values inside of us not matching our behaviors. Okay. So there's like two different things happening. There's our outsides are behaving in a certain way. And then there's not a congruency there. And our insides are very different. And the Altarabba talks about that. The Altarabba says, you can show up in the world as a Bainini. You can make the right decisions. And he gives some suggestions on how to do that. But he tells us, you know, you can do all of that, but there's a big problem. The problem is that your insides still look like a Russia. Mm. <laughs> and that can cause a lot of chaos. I mean, you know how that feels when you're behaving a certain way, but you're not feeling it inside of you. It feels stressful. You know, you feel anxious. It doesn't feel right. And Al Rebbe addresses that. It's so human. So like Al Rebbe says, like, I get it. <laughs> it's not normal to feel that way. And let me tell you, a suggestion. And that's actually the Alter Rebbe's Darach Arucha and Katsara and how to achieve that alignment within us. Are you speaking about 
showing up in the world perfectly, like presenting perfectly, always making the right choices, always staying calm, but internally struggling so much with those choices, not really feeling aligned with the choices and then the resulting stress and anxiety that comes from that incongruence. Yeah. And I wonder if we could flip that also to your question, like inside, well, I guess you wouldn't behave a certain way if inside you were not triggered, but yeah, there's something not matching up. There's something not aligned. So maybe I'm really nice to somebody here. I don't know that I'm being vague about, but somebody in my life that really triggers me for some reason, I can't get to the bottom of it. Mm, She really, really triggers me. There's something about it. But when I see her outside or when I see her wherever else in my life, I'm always kind. I'm always nice. But inside I'm like, oh my gosh, she's really getting on my nerves. I can't handle her. Right. (laughs) That's what I mean. Like you can show up as a vein and let the action And then even that thought, so that's why I said there's a difference between developed thought and then your triggers. So the triggers is just like an emotion that's coming. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not makshava. Makshava is taking that trigger that you're feeling, like I'm feeling irritated by her and you're developing and you're like, oh, you know, you know why I'm irritated by her? You're taking that pop-up on your computer and you're opening it. Yeah. So the Alter Rebbe gives us a suggestion and tells us, I have a fix for that. There's a long way and there's a short way. So the long way is contemplation, and that's often explained as like meditation, but in the way that we understand meditation in the modern world today, it's like we try to take everything distracting out of our brains and we just want space and light and quietness, where contemplation is quite the opposite. Contemplation is very intentional about what we're thinking about as far as what the Alter Rebbe brings here, and that is contemplating in Hashem's greatness. So... Think about starting your morning with my da'ani lafanacha, and instead of just saying it, you're taking those two minutes and closing your eyes and thinking, like, what does that really mean? Like, I'm grateful that Hashem gave me back my soul. Who's Hashem compared to me? Like, oh my gosh, like, who am I? Hashem's so great. And you're really getting into thinking about, like, Hashem's infinity and Hashem's greatness and grandness. And when you kind of ground yourself and contemplate on that from the beginning of the day, it affects the rest of your day. But the Altar Rebbe says this is actually a, a lifelong journey, this Derech Arucha. That's why it's called a long way. Because to really study Hashem, <laughs> you could say so. If, to really understand Hashem, I mean, we never can, but to really learn all those Maimarim and learn, you know, all that there is out there, which is endless, it takes a lifetime sometimes. So, of course, we need to have that, but it's not something that we can apply on our daily triggers. So let's say I'm learning Shar Bitachan right now, right? That's really good, but I'm up to, let's say, chapter one, and I'm really triggered about something my husband just said. It's really annoying me, right? So I need something right now. I need a tool to use right now that's just practical. I'm not going to wait till... I achieve this long and deep understanding contemplation about the greatness of Hashem. So that's something that we need to do. It's a journey of a lifetime. But the Alter Rebbe also gives something that we can easily take out of our toolbox. That's the short way. And how would you define that? So the Derach Ktsara, the Alter Rebbe explains it's like an inheritance. It's a gift from Hashem we inherited from our Avaisi Mais. And that is a love that we have for Hashem. It's sometimes hidden, Avamasu Taras. 
And every single Jew has this. Sometimes we have to dig, we have to uncover this, but this love is actually triggered when our attachment to Hashem is challenged. Mm. Now, I want to get into this because I believe, hope doesn't sound too radical, that the Alter Rebbe actually presents the attachment theory here in the Tanya, in Derech, Sarah, truly. I guess I could explain very quickly what the attachment theory is, and then we can go and loop back here. So the attachment theory was developed by a psychiatrist, a psychologist by the name of Balbi. And it was like in the 1960s, he did all these experiments. It seems very obvious now, but then there was not a lot of research on this, on what happens to a child's psyche and development when there are insecure attachments with their primary caregiver, which would be like the mother in most cases, and what happens when that attachment is ruptured, right? When there's an insecure attachment. He did a lot of studies on this, and it's a very central part of education when you go for counseling and whatever, because we understand our clients through their attachments. A lot of time, if there's an attachment rupture, it's very obvious why they're struggling with relationships later on, right? So getting back to the Alter Rebbe here, the Alter Rebbe says, like, you have this, or you're supposed to have, and let me just go back to this attachment theory, is what he understood, Balvi, is that just as a baby needs air to survive and food to survive and water to survive, right? Just as important is attachment. It's a secure attachment. And there have been so many studies, I can tell you some if you're interested, on what happens to babies who do not have the secure attachment, right? It's a survival dynamic that every single person needs, right? And that happens throughout our childhood, like children need secure attachment with their parents and then teens and then in your marriage, a secure attachment is very important. But getting back here, I think the Alter Rebbe is saying, basically, your attachment to Hashem, whenever you are functioning through your nefesh habahamis, your attachment to Hashem is threatened. In other words, your survival is challenged which is so powerful. It's not about punishment. It's not like, oh, I just did something wrong. I'm going to get punished. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that our secure attachment, which we need for survival, is threatened. Our soul needs that secure attachment with Hashem to survive. And we need our soul to survive. Does that make sense? So what you're suggesting is that in that experience where someone's soul is feeling threatened, in its connection from its source, from Hashem, then what happens? So think of the infants, like in the experiment that Balbi did, he had the, the mothers walk out of the room and then he saw the baby started to cry. And then there were a lot of stages to his experiment. But when I see that rupture with our neshamas, with us and Hashem, it's like the infant crying, our neshamas are crying. That's like the imagery that comes up for me. And then the opposite, when we're connecting to Hashem, when we're functioning and showing up through our nefesh elokis, through our higher self, our higher consciousness, our attachment is as secure as it is. It's becoming even more secure. Like we're feeling that hug. We're feeling that security, that safety. I think just looping back to like the Alter Rabbi gives examples. This is basically with the mysterious nefesh of every yid. And we saw it through the generations that Jews that weren't even necessarily observant or 
the famous story of Dan Pearl, when that attachment is challenged, like our identity is challenged, then we're willing to give up our lives. And we see that through the generations, one after the next, how Jews of all backgrounds were willing to give up their lives rather than, God forbid, rapturing their connection to God. So you were bringing this up as a tool that we can use when we're in an experience where we are struggling and we haven't yet fully internalized deep ideas about God and we want some access to our soul in the moment we're feeling disconnected. How do we use that Ava Misuteris as a tool in that moment? It's a good question. So I think when we remember that we have this deep connection to Hashem, right? And that every action or inaction affects that connection and that attachment to Hashem. Then it motivates us to show up from the higher version of ourselves instead of our triggered self. Does that make sense? For example, I'm triggered by going back to this example by this person who just triggers me. I don't know why. Usually I'm very open and honest. I'm able to look at myself and I'm like, yeah, that's why she triggers me because this is where it is in me. Duh. But like for some reason, there's a trigger there, right? So the question would be like, how does my Hava Mesuteras come about? How does the love to Hashem, like how does that show up? How do we use this tool here, right? That's what you're asking, right? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I do think it's a struggle to really be able to use this in the moment to bring ourselves back to that deep awareness when we are triggered. Like what is the practical tool to use? I think there's a distinction between like, am I internally triggered, but I'm still behaving correctly? Or am I internally triggered and also about to respond in a way that isn't fully aligned with who I want to be? Right. So I feel like there's two different tools that we would use in those circumstances. How would it practically show up? How would it practically show up? Right. So I'm trying to think how that would apply in this case. If we knew in every part of us that we have this love for Hashem, and what does this love for Hashem mean? What, what is this Hava Mesuteris? Maybe we need to kind of explore that, right? How would you describe Hava Mesuteris? I wonder what's coming up for you. This almost irrational love for Hashem that we would give up whatever we have in order to show up for him, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's how the Alter Rebbe explains it. Yeah. In regards to Mesiris Nefesh. Yeah. How would you explain it? Yeah, I would explain it similarly. I know that the Alter Rebbe describes really learning about how every action that we do is that connection or disconnection, like you were saying about secure attachment and that the more connected we become with Hashem, the more we want to feed that attachment and connection. And then when we feel that it's being threatened and sometimes when you're even more securely attached and even more connected, I think that you understand that the small betrayals matter versus if the relationship already feels so fragmented, then the small betrayals don't seem as significant. It's interesting because the Alter Rebbe does talk about those small betrayals. He talks about sin and the small sins that we think might be small and that there's still the rupture there. Yeah. So I think that takes a sensitivity. I think that that takes a sensitivity of really prioritizing the relationship in order with Hashem, with Hashem in order to feel that the small ruptures and small mm -hmm. betrayals are important. Right. So then you would loop back to the Derech Arucha. Right. Because the only way that you can actually feel that relation with Hashem is understanding who Hashem is and understanding how much Hashem loves us. 
Alter Rebbe talks about that love a little later on in the Prakim, but that's why we need both. Essentially, we need both. One feeds the other, right? We really need to understand who Hashem is, who we are, what our relationship is. And then when we understand that, we can access that when we're making decisions, when we're triggered, right? We have something to dig in us. Even getting back to the Maida'ani, like I grounded myself in the morning. Yeah. I grounded myself in the morning with this meditation and contemplation of Maida'ani that Hashem is great, that He's everything. And so that we go back to those things. Can't have one without the other. I don't think so. Yeah. You develop a sensitivity to Hashem so that you're able to access that sensitivity even when you're struggling. Yeah. It affects everything. It's interesting because, you know, meditation in relation to therapy and, and psychology only came out like, let's say, in the, in the 70s. I mean, meditation was here forever, but I'm talking about like in practical application. And one of the main things is to ground ourselves in meditation in the morning, and that affects the rest of our day. So I'm just giving the example of Maidani. I don't even know that the Alter Rebbe brings that in the Tanya as part of this idea of the Darcha Rucha, but. It's those moments of moda'ani or davening or learning or listening to that podcast about Torah, about the, day, you know, the weekly parsha or whatever it is. And that really informs our decisions throughout our day. It, it, does, it affects us 100%. Think about the last time you were really inspired and you listened to something amazing. I mean, tell me that you, that, that didn't have an effect on your day. Not that we were not triggered that day. We are. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that we're coming from a different place. Well, I would say that the altar for sure talks about Maidani because prayer is such a central part of the Bainanese clarity. Like in order to make those choices, there has to be that clarity and that sensitivity that you're describing that we tap into throughout the day. So mm-hmm. I think the fact that you brought in Maidani is so appropriate because for some people, prayer is just a few moments of Maidani. And that is still a really worthwhile clarity to tap into even just for a few moments because our whole day sort of hinges on having something to tap back into, some amount of sensitivity or connection that we could come back to when we are yeah. struggling throughout the day. Yeah, that really speaks to me because I do struggle with davening. Mm-hmm. That is one of my big struggles. It always has been. Actually, when you came out with your beautiful sitter initiative, I went and bought myself. My husband asked me, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want a sitter. And I told him exactly what kind of sitter I wanted. It was so specific. I love never that, that specific. Yeah, I might not daven every day, but my da'ani, brachis, whatever it is that I do, it definitely has an effect on the rest of my day. Those moments where we're really connecting to something higher and understanding that there's something higher around us informs us when we're acting from a place of, for lack of a better word, or like our most reptile brain, our most immature parts of us, our lower parts of us. But we have something that grounded us earlier that's so much higher than us. So it has an effect on like our reaction or emotional reactivity and how we show up. So that's all part of how we use our understanding of our godly soul to help us show up in the world. I want to take it back for a minute to what you were speaking about at first. I didn't feel like we fully got to explore just how we see our animal soul and what it actually means to look at our struggles without shame and without guilt and with a normalized lens. So what does that look like? In the moment that we're triggered. So one, we want to have this spiritual pool to reach into. Yeah, yeah, But then also, how do we look at the fact that we are experiencing a trigger that feels ugly? 
I love this because actually shame and guilt is something, it's a topic I'm so passionate about. Yay. <laughs> and the altar of it talks about it, actually. So he talks about all different kinds of negative emotion. We could get to guilt and shame in a minute. He also talks about worrying about pranasa and being triggered, like we said. What happens when we do show up from our animal self? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Like, how do we respond through these emotions? So it's so interesting. The altar Rebbe says for We'll start with the first emotions. We'll put guilt and shame to the side for a minute. But I think the Alter Rebbe addresses this worrying and the triggering and all of that by telling us that we first have to understand a very central and fundamental idea to who we are, right? And that idea he brings is basically Hashem loves us. It sounds so simple, but he says, if you understood how much Hashem loves you, and he says, how much does Hashem love you? He loves you like a couple that's elderly and has an only child in their old age and imagine how much they love this only child. Now imagine that Hashem loves you a thousand times more. It's interesting. And we'll get to what that means practically, but I just want to loop in the attachment again, because the Alter Rebbe brings this example about how much a father and mother love their child. But think about a person who's learning Tanya or trying to understand Hashem as the father figure, but didn't have a healthy father figure and how that informs their understanding about who Hashem is. We say it in our prayer. We say everywhere, Avinu Shamayim, our father, Avinu, our father. We talk about, even think about a king. We think about Hashem as a king. But what if your understanding about a king is like a really bad idea? So we have to, as we get older, we have to evolve in our understanding of what healthy attachment is. And then we can understand what a beautiful Hashem is. <laughs> Because if you have like a sort of maladaptive idea of what a father figure looks like, and then you're trying to apply what Hashem is, it's going to be very hard for you. So I just want to throw that in. Mm. I know that went a little off topic, but getting back to Hashem loves us. So the Alter Rebbe says, if Hashem loves us, what would be the next rational step? If Hashem loves us, anything that happens to us, He's going to do for our own good. He's not trying to get us. He's not trying. <laughs> he's there because He's crazy about us. He's doing everything because he wants the best for us, right? And so when the annoying, the small annoying things happen that trigger us through the day, we're in traffic or we're late for this podcast because the Wi-Fi didn't work or our children are driving us crazy with their 300th fight of the day, like all these little things. If we go back to what the Alter Rebbe is saying now, Hashem loves us like crazy, like an only child to the most healthy parents there is, right? He loves us so much and he wants only the best for us. So he's not doing this to like make us crazy. This is this happening for, uh, this is happening for a very specific reason. It's happening as an opportunity for us to grow from this. It's happening for us, for whatever. So one thing kind of leads to the next. So those little things are not annoying anymore. They're divinely ordained. They're for our good. It doesn't always feel like that. There's the idea of like concealed good and revealed good. But if everything is for the good, then even the annoying things and even the person that's triggering us and even the fight that we had, everything is Hashem wanted us to have for a reason. Hashem presented it. Hashem brought it up in our life as a growth opportunity. Does that feel practical or is that aloof a little bit? Tell me. No, two things. And I love what you just said. And I'm thinking about two things that one when we really see Hashem from that perspective, then we don't do a mitzvah to earn worthiness. And so 
I think that's very helpful because it makes the whole exchange feel a lot more pure and loving. And I also think that part of what is so triggering about life is the feeling of victimhood. Mm. And oh my gosh. Yes. Yes, I know. Yes. Yes. I think we often resort to being victims. Mm -hmm. It feels natural almost. That belief, really holding that belief that like Hashem loves me a thousand times more than a couple that had a single child in their old age. Mm -hmm. Meaning that everything that happens to me is done with the utmost love, intention, and direction. There's no space for victimhood. It's like purely an act, obviously. I don't want to be insensitive to anyone who's listening to that. I'm only thinking about myself here. So right. anyone who's experiencing anything that does not feel like an act of love, Hashem should heal it and fix it completely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. When I study this or teach it, it's never about for other people. That we only have to have empathy for. This advice is for ourselves. Yeah. When yeah. We're going through it, yeah. you know, when we're going through whatever. Yeah. Like when the Wi-Fi isn't working, perfect example, yeah. you know, like my Wi-Fi wasn't working and that sense of being a victim to the circumstance feels like the Wi-Fi gods are conspiring against me, you know, <laughs> but it's Hashem that loves you yes. so much. Who's directing your path and your journey, who has created the circumstances right now for you, for whatever reason. Yes. Yes. Going back to the example of my son triggering me today, Hashem put him right there so that I can be there for him in his annoyingness that I can show him and embrace him and love him and teach him mm -hmm. from a place of calmness instead of an overstimulated nervous system. That was the simplest example, but I think it's really practical because as mothers, we get so triggered sometimes by these little things, but they're not so little. They feel huge at the moment. They feel sometimes impossible. And to your first point, to the purity of that relationship, it just reminded me, you know, my son, my other son, not my six-year-old, was saying to Hillam, this Shabbos Mavarachim, this past Shabbos Mavarachim, and I walked in, it was in the morning, and I was like, overwhelming emotion. I was like, that's so beautiful, Mendel. And for every capital you say, you're helping a soldier in Eretz Yisrael right now. He pauses, he looks up, he's like, I wish you didn't say that, mommy. And I said, why? And he said, because I just want to say to Hillam for saying to Hillam, not for anything else, because then I feel like it has to be for something. I just want to say it because it's the right thing to do. I'm like, mic drop there. Like, I'm so sorry. You're right. <laughs> Sometimes we're like, you're doing it because of this. You're accomplishing this. But like, mm. there's something so pure in just that relationship and just that connection and just that moment. By the way, how much is robbed of our mitzvahs when we make them each about another form of protection? You know, I do think that mitzvahs are protection. Like, there's no question. We don't know how that works, but obviously they're very powerful in a lot of ways in our lives. But when it becomes about that, we rob it of the purity and of the connection between us and Hashem. And then it becomes this whole subculture of trying to accomplish something or achieve something or something that's... Yeah. I think that's a gift that we have as Chabad Hasidus, that we're not doing it because we're going to go to hell or we're going to go to heaven. We're just doing it because that's what Hashem wants. I mean, that's obviously the ultimate. It's something that the Rebbe taught. Well, let me ask you, I'll leave the question with you and then let's move on to guilt and shame. But okay. something that I'm thinking about is that experience of not having fully internalized a value. So therefore there is incongruence between the value and the behavior. I just wonder, 
is the struggle with the action really just that the value is not internalized. And in all the areas that I struggle with action and that other people struggle with action, is it an issue of a value that's not fully internalized? And then how, like, of course it's a lifelong work. What does it actually look like to internalize all of these values individually? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's the idea of even when we don't feel it inside necessarily, we do it. And sometimes, right, like sometimes you get inspired by doing even when you're not like, when you have nothing inside, like, I don't know, like mitzvah tefillin that the Rebbe campaigned for on the streets. Like people were like, what do you mean? These people don't do any, they haven't washed Nagavasar that morning. Like, how, like, so there's value to just doing the thing because it can stir other things up. I think that when we become adults, our Yiddish guy, which for the most part, for most of us, not everyone has been a default Yiddishkeit because we were in the system and because that's how we grew up, we suddenly have to own it. And to own something, you have to value it. You have to really believe in it. And in order to believe in it, you have to learn about it. I learned about Sneas a year and a half ago for the first time in my life, the way that Sneas is supposed to be taught. I learned it for years in high school. I mean, I didn't really learn it, you know, the way that they teach what Sneas is. But I'm saying like, I learned it like inside with the sources, with the Rashi as it evolved and then to practical halacha because I wanted to know like, really, what is all this about, right? That's just an example, like something that maybe we've just done because we've done, but we have to cultivate feelings for and understanding for and passion for. I don't know how you do that without learning about it, without exploring it, without challenging it. Let's talk about guilt and shame. Let's talk okay. about the Bainanese experience of guilt and shame. Let's go to guilt and shame. So then the Alter Rebbe actually talks about these two emotions that I love talking about. So the first one, we'll start with guilt because they're two different emotions. People sort of look at them the same, but one is guilt is like, I did something wrong and shame is I am something wrong. Something's mm. wrong with me. Okay. So first of all, the Alter Rebbe believes that guilt is a toxic trait. He says it in the Tanya. It's just absolutely toxic. If you think of like the loop of guilt and then you feel down and when you feel down, you just give it to your eight Sahara more and that brings more guilt. It's just like a vicious cycle. Al-Tareb explains it. And then people always question me, well, what do you mean? Like you should feel guilty about bad things you did. Well, there's a very specific time and place that we have our, a time to do teshuva. That's our cheshban hanafesh that we do at night with our shema. And then we can reflect on our day and we can think about if guilt comes up, you have to ask yourself, well, is the guilt leading me? Is the guilt motivating me to change? Is it bringing about an action that's going to change the way I behave? Then that sporadic guilt is good, right? Good. I mean, like if it's leading you to change, then that's helpful. But if the guilt is just bringing you down, then it's toxic. And even those times when you're feeling bad, like I'm feeling bad about the way I spoke to somebody. I'm feeling bad that I did something that's not aligned with my values. And I could walk around the whole day and just feel down about it. Or I can say, you know what? I'm going to put that to the side and I'm going to bring it up to myself tonight. And I'm going to explore that and see how I can change from that. And the Alter Rebbe says, like, when you have these thoughts in your Cheshman and Nefesh, how you're going to change. The Alter Rebbe says that like Hashem has an infinite amount of forgiveness. Think about someone who's very forgiving to you. We can't even understand Hashem's infinite 
power to forgive us. And that's how Hashem forgives us when we return to ourselves, when we return to our true values. So that's as far as guilt goes. Now, <laughs> as far as shame goes, this is fascinating to me because shame is telling us there's something wrong with us. And the Alter Rebbe addresses this and says, do you know why you're experiencing shame? You're experiencing shame because you think you are somebody who you're not. Mm. Who do you think you are? You think you're a tzaddik. That's why you're having shame. So like, forget about that notion. You're a struggler. You're going to mess up and then you get back up and you do teshuva, you return to yourself and there's no reason for the shame. The only reason you had shame is because you were a little bit mixed up of who you were. <laughs> An inflated <laughs> sense of self. Yeah, and it's so empowering again. Like, Balatar is saying, yeah, yeah, you're human. Who do you think you are, right? And it's so interesting. There's a lot of research on what happens to one that is, that is in a state of shame. When someone's in a state of shame, their defenses are up and they get into a state of flight, fight, right? Freeze. We know that. When that shows up for us is that the parts of our brain that are responsible for rational thought, logic, planning, intelligent judgment, right? It literally turns off. Like they have scans of a brain, of brains, they've done so much research on this, of people who are experiencing shame at the time of the scans and their prefrontal cortex and the parts of the brain responsible for all those things I just said are just shut down. Like we can't actually behave normally when we're in a state of shame. And the altar was like, yeah, there's no room for shame in your life, zero. And then he goes on, which is so interesting. He says, you're a Bainani, you're not a tzaddik. And guess what? Like Hashem loves, you know, we have the sweet food and we have spicy food and Hashem loves the spicy food. He loves the salt and pepper. That's the struggler. He loves watching you struggle. That is part of the Bainani. And then overcoming and struggling and maybe messing up and doing tshuva and then overcoming. It's like, imagine you have two children, one that's really good at something. I don't know. Stupid. Like, I don't know. One loves doing the dishes. And every time it's that child's turn to do that chore of dishes, it's no big deal. They just do it. There's no fight. There's no nothing. And then there's this child that hates doing the dishes, struggles with it, fights with you every time in it. And one day you're looking and you see that they're just by the sink and they're scrubbing those dishes and they're so intensely trying and then they wash it and then they walk away and the dishes are still in the sink. So not a perfect job, but you saw how hard that child that struggles tried. You saw that struggle. You saw them overcoming, even if it's not perfect. How proud are you? You're witnessing something so special. Mm. That's how Hashem looks at us when we're struggling. Like he understands that it's so hard for us to do it. We fight with him. We're like, please don't give us this. I'm not interested. And then those times that we do it, it's like, ah, oh, I love spicy food. I love my bainanese. Yeah. I think shame really trips us up in the moment because when we do feel triggered by something, like the example of the headphones, like if we immediately get in our heads of like, oh my God, like the kid is doing nothing. What is wrong with you? Why are you so triggered by such a small action? We're not going to be able to process what's going on because it's actually extremely self-centered, which is what the altar is kind of saying. It's making yeah. it all about me. And like, what does this say about me and who I am? I'm obviously not as evolved as I thought I was or as developed. It's not about what this says about who you are as a person. Like to be human means to get triggered by stupid things, like to be 
really simple sometimes, really basic, have embarrassing thoughts, like that's humanity. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. The Alter Rebbe says about embarrassing thoughts, he literally says machshavas daris and explains exactly what that is in davening. We don't learn that in school, but that's exactly what I was saying. Like, actually, that's the vanity. Mm. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. I once had a conversation with Rabbi Shays to have on this. It was like, that's exactly what the elder I was saying. It was so fascinating and so normalizing. Like, we were discussing about teens and he was saying, this is it. The Alter Rebbe is not talking about like some struggles that we can't relate to. Like, yeah. of the olden days. No. no. The Alter Rebbe is talking about like our day struggles with our children with our spouses, with our thoughts, with the way that we are triggered by somebody on social media. Like that is what the Alter Rebbe is talking about, quite literally. I think the part of what you were saying, it's so hard, like what's wrong with us is sometimes it is worthwhile. And I think that's what Das is, like Chachma Bina and Das. I think Das is the self-awareness part. We can't change without self-awareness. So if we're being triggered when we're having our Cheshbon and Nefesh that night, or we're, when we're in our therapist's office, <laughs> we get to explore where does that trigger come from? And maybe not the example of my child doing something he's not supposed to, because I know where that trigger comes from. I was on the phone being triggered by something else. I know exactly where that comes from, but bigger triggers, right? Like relational triggers. That's something worthwhile to explore. That's what DOS is, is that self-awareness that something's triggering us and being aware, there's so many levels of self-awareness, but getting really deep into where that's coming from, once we understand where that's coming from, we're able to show up in a different way because we're able to change those beliefs and those thoughts and those ideas in us yeah. that are not benefiting us. Because we can observe what's going on within us without clouding that observation with our own projections of what that means about who we are and about our worthiness. Yeah. Actually, it takes a lot of compassion to ourselves. It sounds so 2023, have compassion to yourself, but I found that as I became more compassionate to my triggers and to my reactions and to giving myself space as to why I was who I was, I became more compassionate to other people around me. I really do think it starts with ourselves. And I think that compassion comes with that exploration and that self-awareness. I want to ask you to end off with advice to anyone wanting to be on this Bainani journey, which I think we all are on, but to consciously be on the Bainani journey of really supporting ourselves in making these intentional choices that help us connect more deeply to Hashem, to our, to the godly spark within us. What would you suggest as like a first step? I think we often believe that who we are, are our kind of maladaptive parts, our triggers, our traumas. Like we don't externalize those stuff. We internalize those stuff. I am an anxious person. I'm this. We have so many names for ourselves. And I think a helpful piece for the Bainani journey, at least for me, is truly identifying myself and who I am. Who I am is not all those stuff. That may be a part of me somewhere. But the primary and most important part of me is my godliness inside of me. It's very empowering because I hope it doesn't sound like self-centered, like I'm so godly. So I mean, but it's just the opposite. It takes us away from all that noise that we have inside of us that's stopping us from moving on and saying, wait a second, 
Remember who you really are. You know, the Alter Rebbe goes on in later chapters and says, the famous, you're not a body with a soul, you're a soul with a body. So remembering that as we go on our Bainini journey gives us sort of a new outlook and new perspective and allows us to look at our struggles through a very strengthening and encouraging lens that we do have this greatness in us. It's not us, actually, it's godliness just channeled through us, you know, beaming through us. And so the more we remind ourselves that we can show up to our everyday challenges through that instead of I'm showing up through I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that, I think it's helpful. That's huge. I love how you said that. It's a light that is channeled through us. And we can choose to like consciously channel that light through us because there are a lot of other pieces of our stories that can kind of distort our vision of what is really happening internally. And it's so helpful to be able to clear that noise a little bit. I guess I'll go a little deeper with the practical application because I think it would be helpful here in an experience of anxiety, especially everything going on in the world. I think like anxiety is something that a lot of people are experiencing and for good reason. What does it look like to consciously channel that godly soul, that energy that Hashem is pouring into us? That's such a good question, especially because as you said, we all are experiencing such heavy anxiety right now, including myself. And it's so hard to show up, I guess, as our highest self. I don't know that not experiencing anxiety right now is the idea. Like, I don't know that that's the contradiction. I think that because we have a chelagalakai in us, we're experiencing anxiety. I think it's because we have such a powerful energy in us that is connected to every other energy exactly like that all around the world. We're experiencing that anxiety. And then after that, telling us just as we're all experiencing our anxiety, because we're all connected at the same token when I'm sort of applying it to the collective anxiety that we're talking about, then we can make it more specific. Like we're also connected in our nervous system. We're also connected in our triggers. We're also connected in our grounding. And so when we tell ourselves, yes, we're anxious, we're feeling this and we're not denying it. We're giving space for that, for whatever that is, while you're saying while you're crying, whatever that is, And you're saying, and what am I going to do about this now? And how is this going to help me align with my godly soul, with this energy that I'm talking about? How am I going to show up as my highest self? How am I going to show up as the Bainani in my speech, thought, and action? I think it goes back to what does Hashem want of us? You know, I think that's like the collective part, the collective piece that you're talking about. I think it's all the pieces that we spoke about. I think the first thing is, to understand what is that anxiety that's the das like why is it showing up Mm. for you people don't just have anxiety they have anxiety because maybe something happened in their childhood it could be birth order it could be the responsibilities they had it can be circumstantial i mean anxiety shows up for people in, in various ways and because of various things so really exploring what that is i think is very important because that informs your 
reaction that informs how you're going to deal with it. If you don't know what you're dealing with, you can't fix it. You can't help it. And then also, I think externalizing is really important. So that's in the big picture, externalizing what the anxiety is coming. I feel it. It's not me. It's telling me X, Y, Z. I hear you. You're trying to get me worried about this traffic. I see you coming, having this Mm. conversation with anxiety. Like, I see you're here. Thank you so much for showing up. I knew you'd be here. But right now, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm aligning with my nefesh elokis. I know that Hashem loves me. I know that Hashem is doing this for a reason. And I'm choosing to function from this perspective rather than victimhood, rather than I'm anxious. This is happening to me. Why is this happening again? I can't handle this, right? So I think the first piece is really important before the second piece because the first piece is understanding. With understanding, you can have compassion. With compassion, you can go to a higher level. Nice. I love that. I think that kind of sums up the whole process that you've been describing last hour. Thank you so much. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I feel like we should, we need to like say L'chaim after learning Tanya like this, but yeah, L'chaim to revealed goodness. Amen. Amen. Only revealed goodness in this world and in our own lives. Amen. And in our triggers. Yeah. And I love how you said that like our triggers are all connected. Our nervous systems are all connected because I think that can really see how like the process of Gula happens when we do this work individually within our own selves. Because when you experience someone who is safe within their own selves, securely attached to a Shem in this way that you're describing, you know, like really clear on like what it means to be a channel of godliness in the world, it's contagious. It is contagious and neuroscience proves it by the idea of neuromirroring. Like when someone is completely dysregulated in front of you, like think of a child Mm. throwing a tantrum and you show up as a parent and no no matter what's going on internally, you're showing up as a safe, calm, you're allowing them to express their emotions and you're saying, I'm not afraid of your emotions. I'm right here. You're safe with me and we're going to get through this together. You're the regulated one. So science shows that that person, maybe in this case, the child can much more easily become regulated by your regulation. That's the idea of neuromirroring, right? When you're smiling at somebody, it's easier for someone to smile back, right? There's something going on there. And that's exactly what you're describing here. When we're regulated and the people around us are more regulated, it affects especially B'nai Yisrael because we're all connected and not just connected in body and soul, but in spirit, in every system, in our bodies. And like you said, it describes the anxiety or the grief, like we're feeling it. Mm -hmm. That's why we're feeling it. That's why we're feeling it so strong because it is truly one of us. Yeah. We should only experience goodness and joy. Amen, 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 amen. Elokai zakinina betoratcha urimitotecha Mechaberet nishmati If you enjoyed today's episode and it sparked something for you, touched your heart or touched a raw nerve or just got you thinking, I want to invite you to keep this godly conversation going. Share the episode with a friend. Tag us on social media with your follow-up thoughts. Let's get the truths of Torah into the atmosphere. The world needs it right now more than ever. You can email us at info at humanandholy.com. Find us on Instagram at humanandholy. And you can sponsor an episode or give it any amount through our site, 
humanandholy.com slash sponsor. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single one. And while you're at it, feel free to leave us a five-star rating. It helps other people find the podcast and it brings us joy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk next week.